Well, hello and welcome back to the first episode of the Will and Rob Show for Anno Domini 2021. I am here with my good friend, Robert Hassler, Ministry Associate with Ministry Estate, Director of Communications, uh, some exciting stuff that he's been working on, but that's neither here nor there. My name is Will Stockdale. I'm a Ministry Associate with Ministry Estate as well. Excited to be with you. Um, we have been off air for a couple of weeks over the Christmas holiday and traveling. And so now we're back. Actually, uh, we're only back from a distance once again. Robert, it looks like you're back in D.C., uh, in Virginia. I am still at home. I should be back. But, uh, well, I'll tell you this. So I um, showed symptoms of COVID. And I was like, look, I I have to get tested if I'm going to travel back or if I'm going to be around people. So I went to one of the rapid test sites in North Dallas. And I sat in my car for four and a half hours. What? Yeah. I was car number 501 or patient number 501 for the year. I bet that they serviced 850 to 1,000 cars by the end of the day or 850 to 1,000 patients by the end of the day. I got tested. I tested negative for COVID, praise the Lord, but I tested positive for flu B. I know, which is a more minor strain of the flu. So I have been isolating and healing before I drive back. So I'll head back to DC on Friday once I'm all better. But I'll say this also, like it took four and a half hours. But on the one hand, I was thinking this, who who cares? I think I might be COVID positive. So I can't do anything anyways until I get a test <laughs> right, I'm so, stuck here anyway. So it's like, what difference does it make? And the other, I was just so appreciative of these men and women who were standing outside going car to car, the lady who served me was just had a very positive, cheery spirit. And I was the 500th freaking person that she talked to that day. Right. Yeah. And she was still being gracious, uh, just grateful for our frontline responders and what they've been doing. And not only keeping people safe, but also the, the blessing it was to me by them doing their job and doing it well, let me know where I stood and what I could and couldn't do. So I just, a new sense of gratitude was experienced. Um, during that time. That's awesome. I do have to ask though, what did you do for four and a half hours in your car? Gosh, phone calls, uh, audio booked. I'm audio booking a, a bio on Winston Churchill right now by Very Andrew nice. Roberts. Came out a couple years ago. Really good. And then did some reading and just searched the web. I mean, just whatever. My brother brought me lunch. So I had a great sandwich. So how long were you like were you moving at all or were you just parked for like four and a half hours? No, I was moving. So wrapped around the block. And actually when I finished, I finished at like four o'clock. And when I drove out of the parking lot and came around to get back to the highway, the, the line had grown even longer. So the people who were at the end of that line and I looked around four will prop probably would be waiting for five and a half to six hours from the end of that spot. To Man, there. that's crazy. Yeah. I was thinking, cause if you're parked, what would be clutch is if you had one of those cars with a DVD player in it and you could just like sit in the back, put the seats all the way back and just watch movies all day. That would be what I would have done, but. Well, it moves slow enough and you're not really like (laughs) taking any sharp turns. You you can pretty much just look down and look up occasionally. Okay. I did have a hot spot, so I could have, I guess, watched Netflix. I just didn't think about that. Well, it's probably good that you did it. You didn't want to rot your brain like that. You did good things like read books and and t- in uh, phone call with friends. That's good. Good. That's what I was fishing for. That but I'm very I'm very happy that you don't have COVID. Will I'm glad that you're feeling better, and I'm very excited for you to get back uh, to DC. It's uh, well, no, we were supposed to hang out Friday, but I'm not I know. Be able to. 
I know. But uh, we got back. We got back on Saturday, and uh, uh, from Arizona, and it was wonderful. We I, I had a kind of a similar experience with the folks who were working uh, in the the airline industry. Um, I've kind of heard some like horrible uh, stories over the past couple months because of COVID and people traveling more uh, as the pandemic has gone on, and just a lot of like horror stories about you know, traveling on airlines. And we had such, such some of the most wonderful, uh, like, uh, airline attendants and pilots, and they really made things really wonderful for our family. Uh, and everyone was super safe and, and charitable within one another. I was just really kind of, uh, I had kind of sort of a, um, we're going to be okay kind of moment with, uh, uh, my fellow citizens, if you will, like just a, just a lot of, kind of we're in this together and let's just kind of get through it and we'll be okay kind of thing. And just like the way that people were treating each other, I thought was just wonderful. Um, if you read the headlines, you don't think that that's really where we're headed, but I was, I was pleased to see it. Well, this ties into, I guess, how we want to direct the show, what we want to talk about. But as 2020 closed out, I think we saw people who were saying things like, we really failed this year to love people. We really failed to care for our neighbor. Look at the look at the uh, rates of infection, number of deaths, things are rising. And I, my initial reaction is a, a real uh, aversion to that and a resistance to that. I think as, 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 the, as the church or the American people, different things, not to be a Christian nationalist, don't want to be accused of that there. So <laughs> careful, careful. Have, have we acted perfectly? No, the answer is no. We have not. Has 2020, was 2020 a year where we spent more time than ever thinking about keeping other people safe? I would say to a man, the answer is yes. There's, backtrack it, I guess. There are some people who probably didn't and didn't care and were uh, reluctant. You know, I, <laughs> there were a couple places over the break when I was back home, you know, I was in Starbucks or uh, a Chick-fil-A and there are people who weren't wearing masks because they had a quote unquote medical condition. I was like, you know, the kind of like cavalier devil may care attitude, uh, it was consistent in both of those people. And it's amazing that people with that particular medical condition have the same, you know, uh, I don't care about you. I was like, that, that seems unlikely to me. But I think there's something positive to look at at the end of 2020 in the way that I think that with, with the, the first responders, with the graduate, I think people have towards first responders, with the airline industry, there are a lot of places where I think we have become more grateful and appreciative of sacrifices people are making. No, I think that's totally right. And I think that, um, I, I think a, a lot of the way that the media has covered the pandemic, especially as it relates to sort of um, people doing or not doing what they're supposed to do when it relates to the COVID protocols and stuff. Like when I, when I go onto social media or when I read the news, it seems to be the headlines are like uh, defiant man does refuses to wear a mask at Costco. And it's like this like one-off case that happens in somewhere, you know, far away from here. And, you know, it, there's this sort of element where all these like little individual moments get sensationalized because they get clicks. And so then our, our, our perspective is, there's this whole group of people out there in the country. There's this whole group of people who uh, are defying the, the rules, don't care about their fellow citizens, don't care about their neighbors, blah, blah, blah. They're just kind of being reckless. And when I was like, and I, I, I don't, I, 
I'm sure this is the case for most people. It's like when you know people who have sort of different perspectives on what's going on with the pandemic, basically everyone is just like, yeah, you know, I, I be, I'm careful. I wear a mask, you know, in, the, in public because I'm supposed to. And, you know, I, I, if, I feel, I don't, if I don't feel very good, then, you know, I either go get tested or I just stay home for two weeks until I feel better. Like that's just like kind of the general sense. And it's kind of a shame to me that the way that the media has covered especially the sort of like the citizen response to the COVID protocols has been so let's find the, let's find the sort of extreme cases and like blow those out of proportion, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, um, it's tough for us to get a handle on how things are actually going when it's, when it seems that most people are being cautious and then we're kind of told that most people aren't. And so with that, as we're going into 2021, um, in some ways, the start of a year is an artificial reset. It's a psychological help in that it feels like we're starting something new. So there's kind of a sense of promise in a new year. That's a good thing. That's a gift. That is not something bad. I think that's something that we ought to take advantage of. And I think you and I both are just from our conversations or, or attempting to as we start. So the question I have for you is, as we go from 2020 to 2021, as we start up this year, um, what remains from the previous year that's being carried over and still kind of going a, a main thread of the narrative and then what's new. So what's new and what remains for you in yeah. 2021 so far? Well, I think the thing that remains for me um, and I see it remaining for a good portion uh, going forward. Um, it, it just so happens today that there's a runoff election in Georgia. Uh, there's a lot of drama going on right now because today the, the House and Senate are going to vote to certify the Electoral College results. Um, and uh, obviously there's been a lot of news and, and energy coming out of that because uh, I think it was first Senator Hawley from Missouri was the first one to say he was not going, he was going to vote to oppose the certification. Then a bunch of people jumped on, a bunch of Republicans jumped on to, to do the same. And that's caused a lot of um, uh, backlash from the Democrats and then obviously getting a ton of news attention. But I think one thing that I was predicting after uh, the election in 2020 and the weeks after it were, you know, chaotic and, you know, there was a lot going on and we hadn't, you know, a lot of states didn't get called until like a week after. And, you know, there was a lot of uncertainty about the election. And then I think what happened was, you know, uh, President-elect Biden was uh, officially confirmed uh, by the media, by sources to say he, you know, he won, he, he won the election. And obviously there was a lot of pushback to that very 2000-esque, if you will, a lot of, okay, let's get the lawyers involved. Let's, let's figure out every avenue. Um, and then I think all of those basic, all the credible uh, avenues basically got exhausted. And then the Supreme Court basically said, we're, we're done hearing about this stuff. Joe Biden will be president on January 20th. And then what's basically happened since then has been a very weird uh, phenomena that I've, I don't really know any precedent for, which is this sort of continuing by the president to um, insist that he had the election stolen from him, still running on this platform while he's trying to campaign for folks in Georgia. And then today I just listened to a podcast by The Daily, which if anyone wants to sort of understand like what's going on on the ground um, with folks who are convinced that the election was stolen, um, there's a really good interview that the New York Times does with a, with a voter out of Georgia. She's really, really great. She, she's very charitable. She's incredibly um, 
articulate about why she believes these things. And, and it's a really good job by the, the New York Times reporter to really ask good questions and, and, and very charitably engage her. Um, but what I, think, what I think I see remaining is that this whole sort of like, you know, the 2020 election is behind us. We're moving forward. It's, it's a new administration. What is the, what is the Democrats under a Biden administration look like? What are the Republicans under a Biden administration look like? Well, sort of Trump slowly fades in the rearview window. I don't know if that's going to happen. I think 2020, what I see remaining is a ton of energy still on what happened in 2020 election results. We're probably going to get a committee in the Senate or the House, an investigative committee to look at the election. Um, I think, you know, in, in past presidents who leave the White House, we tend to not hear from them. Uh, very often, sometimes they'll show up on talk shows to you know promote their book of art. I know that was what George Bush always did, and then um, uh, Barack Obama when he was uh, raising money for the stuff that he was doing in Chicago with the his museum and and a bunch of civic engagement stuff. And so, like you kind of see presidents fade away. I, I think that 2020, what will remain in 2021 is I think Trump's going to be all over the headlines, and I think we're going to see a lot more of him than we expect. Um, and so, in that sense, I think. I see that remaining this year. I, like you mentioned, the Georgia election is happening today, the runoff. It's a big, big deal, and it is tightly wrapped up in the results for President Trump and uh, President-elect Joe Biden's election. And one of the things that people like Hawley and Cruz have cited in their actions is that we have precedent for what we're doing. There is some precedent for our action, other people have done this in the past. And what I want to say is like, it's interesting to me, the argument from precedent, because precedent is not the same thing as permission or prudence either. Truthfully, there was a guy who blew himself up in Nashville on Christmas day. We have precedents for people doing that. Does that mean that it is a wise or good thing to blow oneself up on Christmas day in the middle of a city? No, it is not. And I think that the Republicans right here, the ones who are voting for this, it seems like it is an extreme act of self-interest. It is an extreme act of cynicism. They know that it is going to fail, but they're looking to jockey for a position here and place themselves in the light of a certain base that they're afraid of, hoping, I think, that Trump fades out of the picture after January 20th. And it's going to be a very interesting scenario when Trump is still around uh, with his own news network, and they're still having to face these demons that they're betting on, they're hedging their bets, trying to make sure that they're good right now until he fades away and he doesn't, and then, look, they're in a real pickle. The other side of this is, look, the Democrats spent years and millions of dollars, a massive campaign to prove Russian collusion, and it turned out that there was no Russian collusion. I'm trying to see it from both sides here, because it doesn't seem wise for me what these 13 Republican senators are doing. It's not going to work. It's, it's not going to be good. But I also see that you have this multi-year effort by the Democrats to try to prove that President Trump's election was invalid, that it wasn't legitimate. And it's like, gosh, it seems similar. This seems very similar. And it, it, is, it is a cycle. It is a loop right here that seems to be feeding itself. And it's only only going to get worse if this continues. Right. Like how many times can we go, you know, an election season every four, I mean, like seriously, the question is, are we going to do this every four years where it's an incredibly tight race, regardless of, you know, 
uh, of, of, you know, the differences between 2016 and 2020. I mean, it was an incredibly tight race both times and um, you know, in incredibly tight races, you're going to have a, 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 a group of people who see an opportunity to make a lot of money off off lawsuits and, and legal cases. And so those are going to happen. You know, how many times can we do this as a nation where, you know, uh, every single election, you know, is, can't be decided. There's going to be all these conspiracy theories that come out about what had happened and what didn't happen. I mean, it, it is, it's, it's kind of incredible. Um, I, I'm definitely uh, concerned about it. I'm a lot rests on how does president elect Joe Biden come into the administration? What does he say in his inaugural inaugural address? How does he set the tone for his administration? I think there's a lot of pressure on him um, to uh, say the right things and and do the right things out of the gate. And um, that's going to be the big question, I think until for the next couple of weeks. Well, you know, in terms of persona, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's interesting to me that Tom Cotton very early on, Senator from Arkansas came out and said that he's not going to contest their election results. And his reasoning that I thought was good was the possibility of federalizing the elections. And that is a very unwise thing to do, which would end up resulting, uh, having the result of the very same thing that the Republicans are accusing uh, these states of, of doing anyways, of how they're messing with their elections, right? Is that yeah, he's making a very constitutional argument, which I think is very good, which is, you know, the Constitution is very clear about who has who elects the president. And it's it's the states, it's the people. And it's not the role of the Senate. And it's not the role of the House to decide who's president. That's not what they do. And so um, I think it's a very wise and, and sound argument. I think to, to draw it back to a little bit more of maybe a, a political theory level, like very this is very high level you know, 10,000 foot view, but republics can't operate if people are not willing to rule and then be ruled in turn. That, that's, the, that's the key to it, um, is that uh, because we're one citizenry and we're united under certain principles and, and precepts, we trust that even if we're in the minority in this, in, at any given time, that our, min- that our status as humans and, and citizens is protected because we respect that about our fellow citizens. And so a key to the public is you have to be able to understand that you might lose an election and therefore you are to be ruled um, and to, to some extent. And right now that seems to be not very popular. Not a lot of people want to talk about the fact that, you know, if you lose an election, that's kind of it. And, you know, there's certain options available to you based on what you can and can't do. But at the end of the day, that's, that's how it works. That's how the system goes. Um, and then there's also a, a key to republics, which is republics only work if you have a very long-term view, right, of, of handing something down to the generation behind you and, and taking something from the generation that just, that there's this idea of passing down, right? You have to be able to think longer term past your own immediate self-interest. And so, yeah, like, would a lot of Trump supporters want to win the 2020 election? Yes, of course. But a lot of, I guarantee a lot of 2020 uh, or Trump supporters of the 2020 election want to pass down uh, the United States to their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. Uh, and that becomes the more immediate thing, right? And so um, I think those are two elements of, of how republics operate that I just don't see working right now. And it was nice to see Tom Cotton sort of express that same concern. Um, right, right. And, and with that is the idea, um, not my president, that people love to say. And I, 
I mean, just because it was the first time I remember, maybe people did the same with Bill Clinton, but I remember, first of all, with W. Bush, that uh, people would say, he's not my president. He didn't win this election. And then it continued with Barack Obama and then Donald Trump and now Joe Biden. And that's a very dangerous thing to say because that does create two distinct Americas. That was what America then are you handing down to your kids? And this comes to the idea of a, a covenantal understanding of, of the country and of it existing of no, it doesn't matter who you vote voted for. It matters who won and who won is your president. And that's the country and the leadership you live under. It, it, not not who you wish was there. The last thing I would say before we move on, but it, it again in that New York Times uh, interview, this, it, it was just so enlightening for me because she even says at one point in the interview, she says, "I know that I should not be vengeful or spiteful, and like, um, and all that." But she basically says, "Man, I want to say to my my Democrat friends, he's not my president, and see how they like it." There's that there's that thing going on and that's really toxic. And she admits that she, she thinks it's toxic and she's, she's working not to feel that way. So props to her, but like that thing exists. And until we're able to really say it and point at it and say, Ooh, that's ugly. We got to get rid of that. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm concerned about what's going to happen over the next few years. Right. And I mean, this is, as we've said, something that remains and it is against the backdrop of, the COVID-19 pandemic and what is happening. We, we have something, something else that I heard the other day was a statistic where 70% of workers in tech and finance feel disconnected or disengaged from the work. We're sw switching gears here, but I think this is something that will continue on until the vaccine really, really takes root and really has a, we have herd immunity is people who are isolated and who are far from their friends and coworkers feeling maybe a little lethargical, uh, maybe like clearly disconnected. They don't feel like they're being as productive or as valuable. I think this is something that we're seeing a lot in DC. You have people who come here right after college or have been here for a while who came to make a difference and wanted to make a change and do good things on both sides of the aisle. And they're working remotely. They're not going to these committee hearings and this question of what good am I serving? Am I, am I actually doing what I hope to do? And uh, the, the big question here is for Christians, knowing that's the case, whether that's you or me or someone else, how do we help people feel engaged and connected in their work and in their life and with their families when it's very difficult, when we don't have the opportunity to just be near them? And it's a need that the church needs to be able to meet and that we ought to be engaged in is how do we, how do we love and make sure that people recognize that they're part of a community. And that's, that's so tough to answer because it, it, I'm trying to think and my mind just goes blank because it's just a really, really hard thing. I know for like, I feel the isolation. I feel the, uh, the lethargy, the, the, what's the right word? Like the roteness of it all. Right. So like when I came back from Christmas break and I started working this week on Sunday, I told my wife, I said, the prospect of starting work again from, you know, remotely, not being with people staying in our house all day kind of has me depressed. And it was more than just like the normal schmundays that I get. And so what I actually ended up deciding to do was 
was treat Monday morning like if I was going into the office. And so got up early, you know, had my normal morning routine, and then actually got into a suit, like a, a nice jacket with a tie, and went to work and had a much more structured day. And, you know, that definitely did change. It felt different. But the thing that was missing, the thing that really makes work dynamic and exciting and interesting is the is the people to people connection right it's the it's the collaboration it's the teamwork and that's still not there so even as much as i want to say like structure really helps it, it in effect it's really sort of just putting the band-aid on it because what i really miss is being around people and being connected to people and so you know what do we do uh with a foreseeable future where that doesn't seem to be changing. I know that a lot of the tech companies say they're not, they're not even have, they don't have any plans to come back before the summer, um, regardless of what happens. And so, you know, that the prospect of being shut in for another four or five months, I think has got to be driving people crazy. I mean, I, I, it's tough. I mean, like what, what do you do? Yeah. I don't know either. I mean, do you just try to find as many people as possible who, like the idea of getting outside and then find some creative way of grabbing a group of six to 10 of them and go do something out of doors with it. I, I think it just will take a lot of creativity and a lot of effort. And maybe this can be part of our goals, which we'll get to in a second. But when COVID first hit, we were all kind of inspired to reconnect with people that we hadn't talked to in a while. I know I did that, reached out to more people than I normally would because I figured we all needed it. And then it was just kind of like, man, I, don't, I kind of get a little complacent. Um, but, you know, maybe a restart to the year is a good chance to reset that and to get back on the engaging uh, habits to, to try to be more intentional about connecting with people and staying in contact and seeing if people are open for doing more things outside. That's a really good point. It's actually something that just reminded it reminded me of something I'm reading. Uh, I'm reading J. Todd Billings' um, End of the Christian Life right now. And the first chapter is about uh, the pit, Sheol, uh, that the, the psalmist often talks about. And what's interesting, he, he in our in our current, or I guess I should say our popular conception of Sheol, is we, we think hell, so that's the place where dead people are, the sort of the underworld. Uh, and J. Todd Billings makes a good, brings up an interesting point that um, some of the psalm, psalmists speak of Sheol as sort of a place where the living still are. It, it's sort of the, the death before real death, the, the, really a, a pit of despair almost, of, of feeling that you're trapped and, and you can't get out and you really need God to come in and rescue you. And that's what the psalmists are, are getting at. And so what he talks about is one thing that the church and, and Christians in particular in, in sort of the decadent West, he doesn't use that term, but I'll use that term. We do a very good job of pushing death away from us and even really pushing despair away from us because it, it confronts our mostly modern conception that life is about pleasure and, and being happy. Um, and so that, that's, some, that's manifested in something as simple as um, we don't uh, uh, even really, you know, I, he said back in the 1940s, basically like 70% 70 70 of people died in their, their homes uh, around their family. And now that's, that number is super low. Most of the time people, when they get to a certain age, get ship, shipped off to a retirement home and that's where they live and that's where they die. And then the family comes and visits them when it happens. Um, th that's extremely tangible for me because I live in a, a community that has a ton of retirement communities. And it's very obvious that this is where a lot of the wealthy folks who live in the Washington DC area 
send their older uh, elder parents and relatives to be basically be kind of out of the way until except when they need them. And I think that what you were talking about kind of brings those together, which is that the sort of despair that people are feeling about COVID um, isolation, you know, maybe uh, people, especially people with mental illness right now are just going through the ringer with a lot of this. And I, I think at the beginning, you know, the sort of the idea that we all wanted to get together and, and be with each other and then that kind of going away probably has something to do with the fact that we probably had an interaction with somebody where we were like, okay, this is a little too serious. I'm kind of enjoying the novelty of, of working from home, being home, isolated. I don't really want to deal with somebody who's really struggling through it. And I, I, I say that because I'm guilty of it. And I, I understand that because that's how I've been. And so what I'm trying to realize as I'm going through this book and, and as starting in 2021 is that my, my role, my calling uh, as a Christian to, and modeling an incarnational model of ministry means I need to get in there with folks, right? I need to be where they are. And that's going to be really uncomfortable and I'm not going to want to hear it. But maybe that's a way that we really sort of push through the however long we're in COVID is really embracing that opportunity to, to get into the messiness of it with folks and minister to folks where they are. I, I, I wonder if that would be the, the mentality going forward instead of sort of a, what's a new fun thing that I can do with my friends, you know, more so embracing how do I care for somebody and pour my heart and soul into that and not really just be thinking about myself. I don't know. That's kind of a, that's like sort of a, something that jogged into my mind when you, when you said that. I was hanging out smoking a cigar with a friend last night and we were talking about this sense that our life can't get any better than it is right now. That's, and we don't mean for ourselves personally, I mean like the, the feeling is society at large, particularly American society here, that things are better than they've ever been in a lot of ways even including with the pandemic in a lot of ways. Um, and you mentioned the word decadence. And I, several, a couple of years ago, uh, Ross Douthat gave a talk in um, Dallas about his book that was coming out. And he was asking, you know, are we in an age of stagnation or vertiginous growth was the phrase that he used. And in some ways both. And I think with decadence, there is this sense of feeling of stuckness. Well, what more can we do? Things are as good as they're going to get. And then also this just inundation and amplification of all these pleasures and amenities and comforts that continue to surround us that we had no idea that we needed. And I think probably what's going to be interesting is hopefully for the church is people like J. Todd Billings and other people, Ross Douthat, continue writing and putting stuff out that kind of bring our attention to what we're seeing. Looking back on this time of decadence and be like, what were we thinking with these decisions we were making? And, and in some sense, there's like, we didn't know. We didn't know any of it. And there's some innocence there. There's some innocence from ignorance. That's the case. But hopefully, you know, we'll come out of this on the other side and realize that there are uh, simple things that we're missing. Simple loves and cares and presence uh, with a C that are needed that we can neglect um, because of the misunderstanding of what decadence actually does. And Ross Douthat's not the first one to point to the decadence of the West. I mean, that's, that's a pretty common, I think, observation right now that that's where we are. And um, so, so that kind but, of, uh, go ahead. No, what I want to say is with that, to, to shift, we got a couple things more we want to talk about that are relevant. 
One is goals. If you want to share any goals that you have, we let's save that to the end now. I'd like to get okay. that. We'll tie that up at the end. Okay. But then two kind of social things like social funnel that I think are really interesting and they have to do with Kamala Harris and Hilaria Baldwin. Uh, so we, we've probably all heard of this by now, but it, Hilaria Baldwin has come out as not, it seems that her persona is one that has a Spanish accent, but there've been multiple times in recordings where it turns out that she has just a very normal American accent when she talks. And she has recorded and says that oftentimes when she, cause she's bilingual and she flips between Spanish and English there, uh, that, that she'll have kind of a Spanish accent and then it'll kind of shift to an English. Whether or not that's true or not, uh, I don't know if that's actually what's most interesting to me about this. Um, what's interesting to me is that she seems to gain more credibility with the paparazzi or the mainstream media when she has a Spanish accent. There's a greater like sex appeal or interest, uh, uh, desire to hear what she has to say when she has an accent. And I'm like, well, what is that? What's the deal there? Why is that the case? Because I'll be honest, I'm. That's true with me. When I hear someone has an accent, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what that means. Is that, do they have a better thought? Um, you know, we, we, we joke in America all the time, like about the English accent, you know, like we, someone has an English accent, we just assume they're way smarter than anybody else and better educated. So what, what, why is that? What's going on there? And then the other connected with this is Kamala Harris, who it, it seems that she has plagiarized an MLK story. She, has said when she was with her mom at an Oakland rally for uh, civil rights that she said she wanted freedom. Well, that's awfully eerily similar to an MLK anecdote where there was a little girl during an MLK rally who said a police officer asked this young girl what she wanted and she said, freedom. It does seem that there's some plagiarism going on here. And as we start a new year, what I think is interesting uh, is that both of these women, these uh, felt a temptation to invent something of themselves that wasn't true in order to gain a cultural cachet, credibility, larger audience. And the truth is that is not unique at all to, to elite media or politicians or the liberals. That is true on both sides of the aisle. That is true for Christians and non-Christians. We have deep insecurities. We desire to be famous. We want everyone to know, and we will invent and create things to get us there. And I think that these stories actually can really shine a, a magnifying glass or a deep, big spotlight on us and think how we're tempted to do some kind of invention. For sure. You know, it's, it's interesting to me in a time where identity is so in vogue and living your own truth and there's such there's such this premium on your identity as an individual and yet we get all these stories of people trying to reinvent themselves and and create an artificial identity that that doesn't correspond with with reality and i think that that's an interesting dynamic. Um, I wonder if, and like you said, we're all guilty of it. I think, you know, I remember when I came into DC uh, as a young professional, there were all these professional events on the conservative side of, of DC. There were all these things about self-branding. How do you brand yourself? And a lot of it was about 
branding yourself to what other people wanted you to be that would make you get the job, get the next interview, stand out in, in the conservative world, whatever. And I wonder how much of that is just the sort of universal uh, notion that when we peer into our in, to deep in, within us, we realize we don't like a lot of what we see. And that's a, that's a human condition, right? That doesn't, that doesn't discriminate on any, based on anybody. And I wonder how much of this is we, we've really sort of drank the Kool-Aid on identity, looked inward and realized, Oh, I don't like what I see. I need to be something else. Sort of the, the Kamala Harris story in particular, you know, Oh, look at Martin Luther King Jr. This wonderful person, this icon of American history. I want to be like him. Like I need that story. And, and that, that to me is sort of, uh, uh, I also see that in, in, uh, in the case of, I, I remember I read a poll one time where it was, you know, they asked uh, high school kids, you know, what they wanted to be when they grew up or, or I don't remember what age it was, but you know, it was always the same things for years and years and years. It was doctor, uh, astronaut, pilot, soldier, policeman, fireman, like that, those were always at the top five every time. Um, it's interesting that almost all of those are quote unquote, like sort of public service jobs, but um, uh, and then just recently it switched to, I want to be a YouTuber. Like that was the number one career aspiration, which is just very interesting of, of where we are as a nation probably points to the decadence of it all. I think what we've essentially lost that was kind of the, the staple of American history and sort of what the, the country was built on for so long. And then was really solidified after world war two that I think is just completely gone, which is we really had this sense that, it was perfectly good and, and actually right to be a common person, a common person who had a family, did their job, you know, and was part of their community and, and they gave back to that. That was the thing. Right. And that was sort of embodied in, in Abraham Lincoln who said, I think it was Abraham Lincoln who said, God must love common people because he made so many of us. And then you have, and then think about also sort of the Aaron Copeland, the, the, what is it? The fanfare for the common man that is played in every world war II movie, right? Where you, you see that it's the, always the same image, right? These guys from all across the country who came from all these little towns and they came together and they, they defeated not, you know, defeated fascism. I mean, there's this sense in American history that it's the common man um, that yes, we have this sort of, of infatuation with famous people and, and money and, and all this kind of stuff. But there's a, at the base of, I think a lot of stuff, there is this appreciation for the common person. And that's just gone now. I don't, I don't see that ever coming back. Well, let's look at, this is a big rabbit trail. We'll save this for another time, but let's look at when the obsession with identity really came into play and who were people that were very obsessed with identity. Uh, Walt Whitman was one of them. Uh, Virginia Woolf is a great example. Someone who the concern for identity, her writing is replete with it. She is a thoroughly modern writer. One of the things that, Ed, that is indicative of the modern literary style is, is at least the belief that God doesn't exist and his ghost is there. And so there's this feeling, this need to create this identity. Why? Because no one can tell us who we are if we can't. And we're left with this. And that should, that should clue us into a concern when we have this, this, this uh, angst and just crazy obsession with, with reinvention and originalism. C.S. Lewis, interestingly enough, the, one of those genius figures of the 20th century, one of the greatest writers of the 20th century, did not understand why originalism was so 
obsessed over with for writers. You have to tell an original story. It has to be this. And he's like, what? That's not the great stories. That's the, the great stories actually aren't original. They follow a pattern. Right. There's something that they have that great stories all contain. Yeah. And uh, I mean, as he would call himself a dinosaur, right? Because he kind of was straddling these two sides where he loved the classics, but was in a modern context in Cambridge and Oxford. But, uh, you know, he was, he didn't pass the smell test for him at all or the intellectual test. Um, but we, that, that's a whole conversation that we should probably have at some point that I would, I would love to dive yeah, into. Yeah. Of the, the, the question of identity and especially in these two stories that you brought up, the Baldwin and the, the Kamala Harris story. I mean, it's such an interesting phenomenon. There's so much there. It'll be really, it's really worth diving into more. And the last is, is a curiosity to me. Um, the reprehensible group Proud Boys has been in DC recently. The leader of the Proud Boys was arrested for stealing and burning a Black Lives Matter flag. Uh, this is not a good group of people, obviously. Um, I was on Google and I noticed that the word proud is trending. So I wanted to see why it was trending. And I clicked on it, followed it, and searches related to proud are, um, is proud a good or bad word? Are there other words I could use instead of proud? What can I say, in, what can I say instead of I'm proud of you? And what it looked like, the searches really looked like uh, parents were searching and were trying to avoid this word because of it. And for a, obviously a huge number of people, this word has been associated with this, this racist group, this, I don't, I don't, it's not just wrong because it's racist. I mean, there's, there's way more reasons why it's a bad group than just that, but they want to distance themselves from that word because they don't want to, don't want to uh, have that association in their kids' heads. But what's interesting to me also with that is when white supremacy is trending, you don't have people, what's another word for white? And I don't really know what's going on here other than a, a fear of this word of not wanting, I mean, my gosh, is this one of those campus words that when the word proud is going to, hey, professor writes, good job on this essay, proud of your hard work, uh, that all of a sudden an email is going to circulate and they're going to, they're going to ask for this professor to resign as a result. Right. It seems plausible at this point. Yeah, I, I have not been familiar with that development. I mean, I know about the, the Proud Boys, and, but I didn't know about the sort of the word proud. Man, it, it, is, it is really interesting that we feel so, such a need to be so careful about our word choice and walking on eggshells. And I, I wonder if that says something more about our culture than it does sort of this, in this particular word. I mean, I just finished reading... Uh, Rogers, uh, uh, live, live not by lies. And he, he brings up a, a part of the phenomena that he's worried about is, is quote unquote cancel culture. And this idea that, you know, anything that you say, any, any small mistake that you make, especially when it comes to language, if you use the wrong word will be used against you and, you know, get, you'll get fired from your job or you'll lose, you know, this, this, uh, you know, public voice or, or what have you. Um, and I think that the, the sort of obsession about something as a, a word that's so common and frequently used like proud reveals that that is a real strain in our country. People really feel that anxiety over using the right word um, and, and not making a mistake on word choice. 
which that in, in some ways terrifies me because I've probably said three words in this podcast that maybe three years from now will get me looked on and, and they'll have to cancel the Will and Rob show. I hope not, please, but please no. But well, this is true. This phenomenon is true in any thick culture and thickly buffered tribe. Um, there are, there's a language and phrases and semantics that are used that are familiar and that you know. And because uh, we, we live in such buffered worlds, when something alien or foreign comes in that we're not, we don't use that word very often, it immediately we have to cast it out and kick it out because that, that must be some kind of a pathogen or something that's going to infect where we are. And I, I, to your point, I think that it is a sign of the times of, and it's true on both sides. Uh, well, I was just thinking the way that uh, the other side does this is the, is the phrase social justice, right? Like that's got to be the version oh, of it. Oh, you use that phrase and you must be a Marxist. Right, of course, um, yeah. And, and so this, this will continue to develop. Unfortunately, 2021 is not going to be, uh, to use a common, properly used word, immune to this phenomenon. It seems like it's already started loud and clear with the word proud. I think there's possibly some work for Christians to do on how we think about that. Cause pride is one of those things that, um, is, is, is a major vice and a sin. There's a great line in, uh, in the Avid brothers, uh, where they say, I want to have pride like my mama had and not the kind from the Bible that turned you bad. And yeah, there, exactly. There, there is a good kind of pride. And I think that maybe now is a time for Christians to, you know, tap into this and to maybe write an essay or an article to bring some clarification to things. For sure. And I, I think what I hope that this, one of the things that I would really hope for going forward in, in our communities and our nation is just being more serious about language and words. You know, when I, I just read, um, I also just read a biography about Winston Churchill. And uh, it, you know, what's interesting to me about, especially the, the English people, the, the British people, uh, they're sort of great statesmen and, and great, all these like great men and women from this nation had such a love of their language and they really treated words carefully and understood the power that they wielded with words. You know, Winston Churchill was this brilliant orator. He had mastered the English language. I think you could say the same about somebody like C.S. Lewis. And one thing that I see in our nation right now is just a lack of precision with words. We don't really take the same sort of pride in our language. But like I see this in like really weird ways. Like, have you noticed that just swearing is just way, like I hear way more swearing in public spaces than I ever did in growing up. Karen Swallow Pryor wrote an article about it that I think okay. hopefully will gain some traction. Like just that, there's that, that trend that's going on. There's these things happening that we just don't care about the language or the words that we're using. And if you don't have a, if you don't feel like you have to protect those things, then yeah, like you're sort of susceptible to whatever the popular culture wants. So like if the popular culture comes out and says pride or proud, you can no longer use that word then that's going to cause a lot of anxiety in normal everyday people's lives because they've got to get through the day, right? They don't have the, they don't sit in the ivory towers and decide which, which words get uh, said and what don't. They're just trying to maintain a job and get through life, right? So you just can't really operate 
uh, in a culture that doesn't have a love of its language. Well, you know, I blame the the post-structuralists, the deconstructionists and Derrida for all of this because um, our, there's an infinite deferral of meaning. And so if that's the case, then whatever, like literally whatever. Um, well, hey, let's land this plane here with what I promised. Uh, we're, we are running out of time here. Give me one goal you have for this year. My goal for this year is to, it, it kind of relates back to what we were talking about earlier, but I don't want to be, uh, what's the right way to say it? I guess I'll just say it this simply. I want to cut myself off of the need to consume every little thing out in the culture. Does that make sense? And, I, and kind of going back to sort of the decadent thing where there's all of these pleasures, and especially when it comes to media. So there's all these new Netflix shows. There's all these new movies. There's all these new, this new music, these new books to read. And I think that this year, I want to cut all of that out. And I really want to focus on what are the things that are good and beautiful and true and focus on them. And so that might mean I don't read 52 books this year, but if I read five really good books, then I'll consider it a good year. Or if I watch, you know, five good movies, instead of feeling I have to watch every single new release, then that's a good, good year. That's kind of my goal for 2021. That's great. That's great. I think mine is, uh, you know, same with you tapering back on reading actually some, and then, there's this quote by Derek Rishbawi on Twitter that has meant a lot to me. It is, uh, there are so many- the Will and Upshow are big fans of Derek Rishbawi. I'll just say that. Big time. Big, love this guy. And he said, never lie to yourself and never lie to yourself about God. And I think, uh, I just want to meditate on that and make sure that I'm absorbing that which is true and listening and telling myself that which is true and then acting in accordance with that. Because there's just- a plethora of things out there that are not true and that are distracting. And the enemy is the prince of lies and he loves to distract us and to defeat us with that. So that's my, that's my thought and, and drinking more water. I need to drink more water. <laughs> this year. So, Hey, thanks so much for listening to us. I'm Will Stockdale here with my good friend, Robert Hassler. You can follow him on Twitter at RD Hassler. Follow me on Twitter at Stockdale Will. Uh, hope you guys are having a great year so far and we look forward to being back with you next week. Bye.